In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, it is, is, it, sorry, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sarphaviam? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. 
O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and all their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you, she scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it, by the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adremelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with a sword. 
And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esar had and his son reigned in his place. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, this, um, this passage, your word, uh, invites us to look beyond the reality or look beyond what seems to us to be the reality that's so often uh, such a small portion of what is true and to see the reality of who you are and how far your greatness exceeds anything that we fear. And so I pray for us this morning that together as we uh, consider what you have done and who you are and how you love us, that you, would, uh, that you would strengthen our resolve, that you would deepen our trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the very beginning of this passage, um, just the first few verses in, we see the Rabshakeh, this, you know, general of the Assyrian army asking a simple question, on what do you place this trust of yours? In some ways, it's the central question of this passage. In fact, I'd say it's even the central question, really, of the book of Isaiah for his people. And we really could say, in some ways, it's the central question for us and for our lives. On, on what do you place this trust of yours? Each of us have something that we trust in, that we lean on. This world is comp complicated and confusing. We know we can't just kind of power through it without any help. We look to things to give us guidance and direction and protection. Where do we place our trust for us to live our lives? This is the question that, if you might remember, when we first were looking early on in Isaiah chapter 7, it's the question that, that King Ahaz was posed. King Ahaz was the king of Judah before Hezekiah, and he also faced a military threat, the threat of Syria coming at him. And Isaiah was sent to him and saying, Do not need, you don't need to trust anywhere else. Just trust in the Lord God alone, and he will save you. And Ahaz said, No. Instead, he trusts in Assyria. He allies himself with a mighty nation of Assyria, saying, we will be the ones who serve you if you protect us. In fact, he so trusted that king that he actually changed the way that Judah worshipped. He changed the temple and the altar so it looked more and more like Assyrian religion. On what do you place this trust of yours? Not God, Ahaz said. But Hezekiah, his son, is a very different person. It's not clear why, whether it was maybe the tutelage of his mother or maybe friendship with Isaiah, but for some reason when Hezekiah grows up, he grows up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord, seeking to live faithfully for him. And as he becomes king, he wants his people to be a people who place their trust upon God. And so in many ways, his reign is one sustained effort of repentance of seeking to lead the people back to the way that they are supposed to be. And so he reforms worship. The temple is changed back to the way it's supposed to be. Passover is once again celebrated. The high places which were not allowed by God's word have been torn down so that it's faithful worship. And perhaps most importantly for our passage this morning, he chooses to turn away from Assyria, to break with whatever bonds or treaties they had with Assyria, 
and trust in God alone for their strength. Now, that is a good thing. Repentance is a good thing. Seeking to trust in God is a good thing. But the the thing about repentance is that it is often messy. Because even when we change direction, we don't always do it flawlessly, and we are still haunted by the mistakes that we have made, and, and there are other things that can make repentance really difficult. And that is true in this situation as well. You may have noticed, but it happened so quick, I'll, I'll read it again. It says, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. The mighty nation of Assyria, now that Hezekiah said, we don't want any part of you anymore, has decided to plow Judah down city by city. Fortification by fortification has been burnt down. Soldiers have been killed. There is one city left other than Jerusalem. That's Lachish, and it's besieged, and it's about to come down. And this is what happens when Hezekiah says, I will trust in God. It's It's messy. He is discovering that when we turn to God in repentance, almost immediately we often experience resistance. This is, I think, a really common pattern. Whether we're talking about when someone first turns their life to God and changes the very trajectory of their life saying, I will trust in Christ or whether we're even talking about us as followers of Christ at certain times when we've been convicted of the wrongness of our ways and decide we want to change. Oftentimes when we first turn in repentance, when we first change the direction of our lives, there is a joy, an awareness of forgiveness, a clarity of what we're wanting to do. But often, soon thereafter, we experience some difficulties. Sometimes it's because of the consequences of our previous actions still coming back on us. But, but sometimes we find that as, that as we are pushing, as we're turning in the direction that we're called to go, there are forces, forces that we're happy to leave us to our own desires, but the moment we start seeking to follow God, forces that resist our repentance. And that's exactly what Hezekiah is encountering as he turns away from this idolatrous way and he turns to God, he is meeting a resistance and it is terrifying. And so what we see is as as the mighty nation of Assyria with hundreds of thousands of troops are besieging this one city, Lachish, the king Sennacherib sends his top man, the Rabshakeh, with an army as a show of force, and they go to Jerusalem, the final remaining city, to to Hezekiah, and they go to talk. They, They go right to the very wall, and we see that the three, you know, kind of representatives of Israel's rule, or Judah's rule, comes out. But but what's clear from the outset is the Rabshakeh is not here to negotiate. He's not here just to have a kind of casual conversation. No, what is clear is that he is here to engage in psychological warfare. Perhaps you noticed how he is intentionally speaking in Hebrew, and he's speaking loud, and he's speaking to the wall because he knows there are people on the wall who are listening in terror, and he wants them to hear exactly what he is saying because he wants them to surrender. He he wants to break their spirit. 
He, he wants to help them to realize that this turning to God was futile. He wants to resist their repentance. And if we listen carefully to the words that he says to these terrified inhabitants of the final remaining city of Judah, we hear not just a proud general, but we hear something, I think the best word to say is demonic. This is the tempter working through this one man, seeking to turn people away from repentance. And if we listen carefully, we will recognize the very temptations that he is using. I mean, it begins with exposing for, for the people of God in the city just this sense of vulnerability and weakness. It, it comes from the very beginning. Did you notice how it says, and the Rabshakeh said to them in verse 4, and if you don't have your bulletins open, I invite you to because we'll be just kind of like working through this passage. Uh, it says in verse 4, say to Hezekiah. Notice there's no title here. It's not King Hezekiah. It's Country Bumpkin Hezekiah. This thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. There's no comparison. I was trying to think about a modern comparison, and I remember when I studied geography in high school, there was this little tiny nation of Liechtenstein, which you can't even find in a map. If you combine, you know, compare Liechtenstein and imagine the United States of America deciding to bring all of their force upon this tiny nation. That's, that's what's going on here. Like, you are a country bumpkin king, and this is the great king, and he is saying to you, there's no comparison. And notice what he says. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And that really is what's going on, isn't it? I mean, Hezekiah, what does Hezekiah have to lean on? It's not the size of his army. He's got nothing. He's got nothing compared to Assyria. It's not like they have some great military technology that can cause them to overthrow the Assyrian army. What do they have? They have words. I am the Lord your God. They have the words of Isaiah expressing the promises of God. Their whole strategy is placed in words. Do you feel the weight of that? I mean, every day you and I are called to make a choice that, that pushes us away from what is normal by the world's standards, to, to seek to follow Christ even if it's sacrificial, even if it's different. And we feel the weight of the normalcy, whether we see it in the media or the stories we tell, the, the, the way that the world normally is. Maybe we can describe that as just kind of allowing our desires to be what direct us. We feel the normalcy. And meanwhile, what are we doing? We are gathering in some strange building, sometimes shutting our eyes and speaking to the air. Later, we will have a snack with a thimble full of wine or grape juice. And somehow, it feels weak. Like, what are we doing? We, we're trusting in words. The words of the gospel. Don't we feel the vulnerability of that? And then the Rabshka goes on and, and moves from talking about that feeling of weakness and vulnerability to kind of questioning track record. 
He talks about Egypt. You know, didn't you place your confidence in Egypt? And Hezekiah did. That was one of the mistakes Hezekiah made in this process. He made an alliance with Egypt thinking that would help him. Or, or what about those high places that you once were worshiping now, but now you're not? What's going on there? It seems like your track record is a bunch of mistakes. And meanwhile, what's our track record? We never stop winning. We keep on winning. Whose side do you really think God is on? Who do you think you're, you are if you are these people who keep on getting things wrong and we are an army who keeps getting things right? If you just look, where do you think God really is in this? And again, don't we feel the weight of this? It's hard enough at times to believe that there is a God who is real and who is powerful, but then to take the next step and to believe that this God cares about us? Us who have such a high propensity to mess things up again and again and again. Who are we when we look at our lives to think that this God would be on our side and care for us? Then the Rabshakeh's next temptation is, is devastatingly simple. He basically asks, is this really worth it? You, you know what's about to happen. You know that we are going to besiege this city, which means you will starve. That's why he has this colorful language about eating dung and drinking urine. You know you are going to be desperately hungry. And you know what would happen if you just surrendered? Well, we see that in verse 16, right? It says, then, each, make, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat. And sure, yes, you will be kind of taken away from this place, but the place you're brought to, there will be food. Right now, you are about to experience misery, and if you just gave up, it would be easy. Why are you doing this? Is this worth it? And we know that temptation too, don't we? The choice to follow Christ is at times hard. Jesus himself says it will be. It involves sacrifice. And just following the path of least resistance is so easy. Is this worth it? And finally, his, his final temptation, which in some ways is the heart of it all, we see in verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? This temptation is one actually any of us who have grown up in Christian households are probably familiar with. At some point in your life when you grow up in a Christian home, it occurs to you, I have friends who've grown up in other homes. They've grown up maybe... Islam or Hindu or secularism, and they believe whatever their parents do, and I believe whatever my parents do, why am I convinced that I'm right and they're wrong? That's essentially what the Assyrian king is saying here. Look, there's all these other nations, and they have all their gods, and each time they trusted in their god, and look where it got them. Why are you so confident that you can trust in this god? And there it is. That, that is the question that has underlined everything. Are you going to place your trust in this God? You see how weak you are. Is God really someone who can get you out of this? 
You see how much of a failure you are. Are you really sure that God is on your side? You see how hard this is going to be. Are you really sure that God will make, you, make this worth it? Upon what do you rest this trust of yours? In the end, that is the question that Satan asks with every temptation with which he tempts us. Upon what do you really want to rest your trust? Do you really want to trust God? And so we see then, after this long temptation, we see Hezekiah respond. Hezekiah has his faults. We'll see some of the faults if we were to read, say, in chapter 39, some of the mistakes he makes. But here is a moment where he does things right. And quite simply, what we see him doing is choosing not to engage with the tempter, but instead to engage with God and turn his gaze towards him. And here's why it's important. The thing about about the way that Satan works with temptation, it's not just the subject matter of the questions that starts attacking us. It's the very way he frames the whole story, the way he frames our attention. Have you ever had it where you are so engrossed in a story that you're reading or so focused on maybe a movie that you're watching that you forget who you are really. You forget that you have like, you know, water boiling and you need to put, you know, the dinner going because you're so in that story. You forget things. Well, well, there's something about temptation that works the same way, that when we are tempted, Satan starts changing the way we see things so that we only zero in on the problem right in that moment. And we forget. We forget that there is a God who is bigger than all of this. See, if we even engage with the temptation, we allow the tempter to set the parameters, to set the reality of the way we see things. This is what Eve's mistake was. When Eve was tempted by Satan, her first mistake was just to even engage with Satan because the moment she starts kind of responding, she's dignifying him and allowing him to set the terms of the way things are. Contrast this with Jesus. What does Jesus do in his final moment of temptation before going to the cross? As his accusers speak to him, he remains silent because he's already done all of his speaking before God at the garden. That's how he's battled temptation. And that's the same thing we see here. Did you notice at the very end of of this speech of the Rabshakeh, it says, verse 21, they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. That is not the conversation that we need to have, Hezekiah was saying. And so the conversation that was needed was a conversation between Hezekiah and God in prayer. Because the thing about prayer is it, it's a reality check. It reorients us again to the way things truly are, especially the way that Hezekiah prays. Notice that Hezekiah doesn't pray the way that sometimes we might be inclined to pray. Sometimes if we're filled with anxiety, we will spend all of our time describing the thing we're anxious about. God, there's this and there's this and there's this. In the end, we're not looking at God at all. We're just looking at our problems again. But that's not what Hezekiah does. Do you notice what Hezekiah's prayer is? He turns his gaze towards God. We see in verse 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. You see how in prayer he is turning his gaze and seeing God again. And then he just asks, 
Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib. And then he sees what has just gone on from the perspective of God. It says, Sennacherib, which he has sent uh, to mock the living God, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood, and stone. Do you see how in prayer he is reorienting himself to reality? And then when he asks, he doesn't, he doesn't ask with any sense of entitlement. He doesn't say, Lord, we deserve this. We have repented. You need to do this for us. And he doesn't try to manipulate God by entreating with words and words and words. He just simply asks, essentially saying, Lord, we are your people. For your name's sake, please save us. This is the way that you battle temptation. When you, when you are seeking to repent and you are finding resistance, the, the way to respond to it is through prayer. Because Satan does not have this vast bag of tricks. In the very end of things, again and again, what Satan is seeking to do is to omit God from your way of telling your story. And as we pray, we reorient ourselves and remember that we are not alone, that there is a God who is far greater than anything that we're facing. And this is what happens when Hezekiah prays. And then something else also happens when Hezekiah prays. What we see is that God remarkably answers. Did you notice what, what Isaiah says? He says, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, this is the word that the Lord has spoken. Because you prayed, here's what God will do. God answers prayer. Now notice before God actually even says, this is what I'm going to do, he, he starts by addressing Sennacherib. And you should be clear that Sennacherib's never going to hear these words. God is speaking this so that Hezekiah can recognize rightly what the real relationship between God and Sennacherib is. And here's what, what God says to Sennacherib. If Sennacherib were to hear, this is what he would hear from God. It's like, he says, first, thus says, remember how it was before, thus says the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Now God says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. You know what? This little city that you think so lowly of Zion, it's about to laugh at you. It's going to be mocking you. And do you know why? Because you don't know who you're dealing with. Do you realize who you've just been mocking, speaking words against? Do you know who you have rolled your eyes at? It is the Holy One of Israel. You have done these things that you say. You've gone to different nations. Do you want to know why? Because I have allowed it. I know everything about you. I know when you're going, I know when you're coming. And I know that you've just spoken words against me, and so it's time to go home. I mean, that's how it finishes, right? Where it says, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. 
And the reason God is saying this, again, Sennacherib will not hear it. It's too late for Sennacherib, but it's so Hezekiah can realize all along what he is so terrified by is just a silly old man who thinks it's smart to raise his fist at the God of the universe. Hezekiah needs to realize that as frightening as this feels, what he is afraid of does not compare in greatness to the God that he worships. And so do we need to see that as well, don't we? Whatever it is that we are facing, whatever it is that we fear, it does not compare to the greatness of God. So after, after God finishes addressing Sennacherib directly, he then tells Hezekiah, this is what I'm going to do. You do not need to be afraid, he says. No one is going to come into your city. There's not going to be a siege mound raised against you. There's not even going to be an arrow that flies within your walls. In fact, in a little time, you will be able to leave the city. You will be able to plant again. Your life is not over. I still have a plan for you. And he says, this is why you can be confident about it. Verse 31, or sorry, verse 32, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Zeal is just another word for passion. Saying the Lord of armies is passionate to make sure this happens. Let me tell you, When the Lord of armies is passionate to protect you, you are in a good situation. And he explains this even more in a few verses later in verse 35. For I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. He's saying, this is my people. We have made a covenant. It bears my name. And because this people have my name on it, do you think I'm going to let them get destroyed? This is the people with my king, the king that I have promised. He will reign forever. There will be a king on the throne who will reign forever. Because I've made these promises, do you think I'm going to let them destroy it? No. Because of these things, I am passionate to save and defend this city. Now, this is really good news if you think about it, because the very same things that I've just said are true about us. Who are we? You and I are people who bear the name of the Lord God. When we're baptized, how are we baptized? We're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we are a people whose king is not just David, but the Son of David, the Son of God, Jesus Do you not realize that that means that even as passionate as God says he was for this city, he is at least as passionate for you and for me? He says nothing can separate us from his love, not life nor death. He is going to be making sure that all things work for our good because he loves us. And he says, you want to know how deeply I love you? I didn't even spare my son. He laid down his life. That is how passionate I am to see you rescued, to see you protected. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish our salvation. And so that means we don't need to be afraid. We need to hear this. We need to hear this because here's the reality. You and I, every day, will face this question again and again on on what do we place our trust. 
as we seek to live in a life of repentance, as we seek to entrust ourselves to Christ, we will face resistance. And the only weapon we will have to deal with it is the truth. The truth of who God is and the truth of how deeply He actually loves us. So there's one more part of this passage And what's kind of surprising to me is just how kind of small it kind of feels. I mean, if this were a Hollywood story, you would have huge special effects. It would take the last 45 minutes as God triumphs. But but you notice it's just almost this kind of like, by the way, the angel of the Lord went and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, and returned home. I think it feels like an anticlimax because the writer understands something that we need to understand. If God has decided something is going to happen, there is no more question about what will take place. If God has decided He is for us, there is no more question of what will take place. The remaining question is the question that we were posed with at the very beginning. Upon what do we place this trust of ours? Invite us to take a couple minutes to respond in prayer, and maybe if you are like me and you realize how often your heart is not inclined to trust God, um, it would be appropriate for us to respond in confession or however you feel like God has been speaking to you to respond appropriately. And after a few minutes of silence, I will lead us in prayer. Would you please join with me in silent prayer?